Hi, I'm Dr. Beth Mollison. And I'm Dr. Alyssa Watson. Thanks for joining us in the Veterinary Break Room. These are short conversations where we chat informally about relevant topics in veterinary medicine. And today we have a heavy one. We are going to be discussing euthanasia. Um, One of our biggest questions that we wanted to discuss is, do we really think euthanasia is the hardest part of the job? I think anyone listening can relate. Actually, it happened to me this morning where someone says, oh, you're a veterinarian. I would never be able to euthanize pets. I know that can be a triggering question for some of us because I know at least personally, I don't think that that is nearly by a stretch the hardest part of the job. But what's your take on that, Alyssa? Yeah, I. well, given that most of my job is uh, is in home euthanasia. I hope it's not the hardest part of my job. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that question or or the other one that you know inevitably we get is I would have been a vet except mm-hmm. I couldn't euthanize animals, and that one's always a hard one for me to answer too because I, I you know encompassing all of the emotions that go along with performing this service in a succinct way to make people understand it, I think is just too difficult. And so it's one that, you know, I kind of um, just skip over and and say, oh, yes, yes, you know, kind of pat on the back and then let it go. And it's interesting because um, another uh, very wonderful veterinarian commented recently um, when she was talking about moral distress in the profession that maybe clients are recognizing something about us or about our profession that we are dismissing because there is so much moral distress and that that caught me a little bit off guard is something like performing euthanasia having an effect on me that i'm not aware of so that was a little surprising because no, in in 19 years, I've never, ever thought that euthanasia was the hardest part of my job. Yeah, that's fascinating. I have never been presented with that question and it does make you wonder, but I have to agree it is, you know, to me, the hardest parts and the ones that do wind up giving me the biggest burden of distress would be, at least for me, things like when people can't afford care for their pets. Of course, that's a big one for people. I think too, one of the, most underrated distressors to me is young patients that have really bad scenarios happen to them. You know, the young Mm -hmm. dogs with lymphoma, things like that. Those really weigh heavily on me seeing the distress that the owners are put through. Abuse cases, you know, I think depending on where you practice, but no one's immune from it. Those, of course, are some of the more heavily um, distressful ones. To me, euthanasia sometimes winds up being one of the few cases where you really feel like you are doing what you got into veterinary medicine to do. You're forming that really strong bond with the client a lot of times, I think, um, which I think is what a lot of us were driven to veterinary medicine to do. So it is, it's interesting to compare kind of the outsider perspective versus at least, you know, what, what our opinions are here. I find the the most difficult situations for me are definitely the ones that are in clinic, not the ones where I'm, you know, doing an in-home euthanasia, because at, at that, you know, one of the things about that is everybody knows why I'm there. You know, they've mm-hmm. they've made the decision. They know when they're and and there still are definitely times where we need to talk. Um, we'll have you know more like a quality of life consult. You know where the owner really needs almost permission to be able to say goodbye. So there's those cases, but 
that is a completely different experience than, you know, the the one that's so hard is is when you're in the clinic and the person brings in the limping dog and thinks that they've, you know, just hurt themselves or you jumped off the couch wrong and there's actually osteosarcoma there or some you know, and you have to right, go the in two and year have, old greyhound that exactly yeah, for the worse. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Exactly. Yes. Or like you said, lymphoma. I mean, I've had I I've had animals come in over the years that came in for, I, I remember one very distinctly young dog. Um, it was a, a Sharpe that came in for Bordetella. And in my exam, I felt the lymph nodes and all oh, my heart oh. just sank, you know, just to, to have to have that conversation with the owner when they thought they were bringing their animal in for a Bordetella vaccine. That was hard. The euthanasia yes. itself, you know, that, that wasn't hard, but and yeah, you make a good distinction because I do mm-hmm. think a lot of times it is that it's that initial euthanasia conversation rather than the process itself. And so, yeah, I shouldn't discount that. That a lot of times it is it's it's knowing when to bring up that euthanasia word. A lot of times, you know, in older pets that maybe aren't doing well that have chronic illnesses, I think it is so hard to gauge an owner and try to decide when to bring that up. I know some owners almost need you to be the one to say it first. The other 50% of owners need you to not bring it up because they cannot go there. And so it is really hard, at least for me, a lot of times to gauge and read the situation. It can be kind of a gamble to be the first one to introduce that subject, especially in those really gray zone areas. I I agree. I've gotten better at just asking openly. And I think that one of the things I've adjusted my phrasing a little bit more to, you know, what are your end of life expectations, you know, or, you know, do you have experiences that you, you know, want to talk about? Because getting an idea of what their previous end of life or euthanasia experiences have been can really help you moving forward. I like that. I like that phrase, end of life discussion because it doesn't always mean euthanasia but it does open that door Mm -hmm. because i know it is it's such a hard topic for owners and it's such a hard process to go through some of them have never experienced it before don't really even know what it entails of course i feel like you run into people that have never even heard that word they just use the colloquial you know put them to sleep sort of Mm -hmm. verbiage and so introducing that topic can be hard too but when it comes to the euthanasia process I know, Alyssa, I'm going to consider you a euthanasia expert here because you've done a lot of in-clinic <laughs> euthanasias. You've done a lot of at-home euthanasias. From a client perspective, what do you think makes it a bad or good process? What are some pitfalls or what do you think are some tips that you have for people? Well, I'm definitely not an expert, um, but I, <laughs> you know, I do, I do several of them. I've done, you know, eight so far this week and it's Wednesday. Wow. So yeah, yeah. Well, when you know, that's their primary job is the in-home euthanasia sure. service. And so a lot of things have changed for me since I started doing the in-home euthanasia versus, you know, how I viewed it or how I did it in the clinic. And it's a little bit difficult because I still am in clinic. You know, I still do several shifts a month in clinic. And so switching back and forth between kind of the two different methods or protocols, when I'm in people's homes, I don't put in IV catheters. I'm completely by myself. I don't have a technician come with me. And so... Uh, you know, I've learned 
alternate routes of, of euthanasia. And I'm very comfortable with those. I'm very comfortable with intra-organ injection, like intra-renal injection or, or intra-hepatic injection. I'm also very, very comfortable these days with a butterfly catheter. And so, you know, those are definitely tips and tricks. And there's wonderful training out there. There's good articles, you know, there's, there's ways to learn these alternate routes. The biggest thing is, is that, you know, if you're going to be using an alternate route, that's not intravenous injection, you, you really need anesthesia, you know, not just sedation, but anesthesia, mm -hmm. especially if you're going into organ. And there's lots of, you know, different, so many different cocktails out there that that people like i'm i'm a huge lover of ace promazine i've always i've kind of always been a lover of ace promazine i'm <laughs> You're allowed to say I'm that old okay. i'm old and i like <laughs> ace promazine as a sedative um and and so but i love it for for you know sedation anesthesia for um for euthanasia because it dilates the vessels really, sure. really nicely. Um, yes, it, it definitely does cause, you know, vasodilation and low blood pressure, but that's okay mm -hmm. in this instance. And so it makes it very, very easy to find those veins. A vein that I love is the, the dorsal pedal vein um, along the top of the metatarsals. Uh, I've found that that's a really wonderful one. But going back to a client perspective, I think a lot of it is communication, you know, because I've found that, that there's a lot, um, there's a lot of people that have these, they have expectations and they might not, not necessarily be correct. Sure. So especially in how, you know, um, the euthanasia solution works, a lot of, a lot of clients, I think, assume that we're suddenly stopping the animal's heart, like giving it a heart attack and mm -hmm. that's scary to them. And right. so even just taking the time to explain that that's not how pentobarbital works and right. you don't have to go into huge detail. I usually say something like, I'm going to, you know, administer a medication and it is going to um, quiet the signals from the brain to the rest of the body, you know, and, and sure. at that point they're already sedated. So I say, you know, it's going to even deepen that sleep even further, um, you know, and quiet those signals from the brain to the rest of the body so that they know this is more of kind of a natural thing and not a sudden stop. Yeah, I think that's a good point because I know I used to shy away from wanting to discuss the procedure because it felt so clinical. You know, I didn't want the owner to have to kind of be involved, be aware. I just wanted them to be able to be with their pet. But I have definitely found through the years that taking a moment, like you said, not in great detail, but explaining, you know, there are going to be three injections. I'm going to flush the catheter. The white medication will help your pet fall asleep. Just very simple terms. And yeah, like you said, explaining them, preparing them, because I think it does keep from any confusion happening, which is the last thing that you want happening during a euthanasia would be to have um, any, you know, unclear expectations of what's going to take place, of course. But we do, at least in my clinic, a lot of times we will take the patient briefly away from the pet owner to place like an IV catheter. To me, the last thing I want them to see on the day their pet is being euthanized is any sort of struggle or resistance to having a catheter placed. But obviously, you do a lot of this in home, and you said even without catheters. What's your take on on keeping the patient with the owner the whole time? What are your thoughts? 
I think that one of the things that you need to do is is what's comfortable for you and what works in your practice, okay? And so I know there'll be a lot of palliative care veterinarians and in-home euthanasia veterinarians that are very adamant that the pet should never be separated from the owner. But I think that we really need to also look at, you know, what works the best for your practice and and how you're going to be comfortable as a clinician. I would totally be fine, you know, not separating the pet from the owner, doing everything in the room in front of the owner, because I have these other experiences and I'm confident sure. in my techniques. But also that would mean that the the hospital that I work for, the clinic that I work for, would need to significantly change their, their protocols and drug logs and everything and order some drugs that we don't normally carry. And so I understand that that's not going to happen, you know, everywhere. Um, sure. And so when I'm in clinic, we we do what you do. The, the pet is briefly separated from the owner so a catheter can be placed. I assume you're, you said white, white stuff. So I assume you're using propofol. <laughs> you <got> it. <laughs> yep, exactly. Same, same thing with me too. And, and, you know, just again, explaining to the owner what's going to happen. And as you said, you know, you didn't, at first you were unsure how much detail or whether or not. That's another thing. I ask permission so much more now. And, and I find that that really helps owners. I just say, you know, with your permission, I'll give the first medication. Or many people feel that it, it helps them to know what to expect. Is it okay if I tell you the steps? And that sure. leaves it up to them. And if they, and there's some people that don't want to know and they're like, no, I don't want to know. Just do what you need to do. And then I'd be quiet because that's what's most comfortable for them. Right. And yeah, like you said, I think one of the things that is so difficult sometimes about euthanasia, and it's the same with humans grieving anything, it's hard to know what to say in those moments because people are so varied in what they want to hear, what sort of comments make them feel better, you know, what's comforting to them versus what is too much invasiveness into their personal space during a time like that. Um, one thing that I have found interesting is I've started, you know, gauging this situation. Again, it's hard to find words of comfort, but something that I have found that seems to help a surprising number of people is a lot of times I will ask questions about the pet, again, gauging the situation, but I have found so many people love to share stories of their pet during the process. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that since I know sometimes you're in the home with lots of family members around. Mm -hmm. What do you find like as far as comforting words or things like uh, that? Absolutely. I am there and sometimes I'm there as much as 45 minutes or an hour in people's wow. homes. So absolutely. I think that that is a wonderful way for them to celebrate, you know, the life of their pet. And, and that's another thing, especially when I'm at home is I try to stay away from words like, you know, I'm sorry for your loss or, you know, this is, it is hard. And I'll tell people that too. I said, you know, just because we know it's the best thing to do mm -hmm. doesn't make it easy, you know, mm -hmm. and so we can have those conversations. But I also try to focus on the fact that we are, we are releasing the pet from any struggle that it's experiencing at the time, but we're also making a promise that we're not going to let it get worse. And I sure. think that that's comforting for people too. I oftentimes ask, you know, if I feel like they would like to share something, one of the openers I use all the time is, is 
you know, how did your pet get its name? Because I find that I like that's that. one. Yeah, that's <laughs> one that can get them talking, oftentimes reminiscing about how the pet came to them. Right. Um, you know, I like and, it because they can keep it brief if they're not in the mood. You know, it mm-hmm. could be a one word answer um, or it can yeah be an opener to discuss if they're in that sort of a mood. Yeah. Yeah. That's so perfect. it's one of one of the things that I talk about a little bit. Love it. And, you know, you do do a lot of at-home euthanasias. I don't know if what sort of discussions are had beforehand, but I guess whether in the clinic or at home, have you ever had to decline a euthanasia? I know that's something we talk about in veterinary medicine is what to do for these so-called potential convenience euthanasias and, and that whole topic. Is that something that you come across frequently? I will say my views of it over the years have changed significantly. And that is because I think I do a lot more listening now. And as my life has changed, as I've gotten older, as I've had children, as I've, you know, the, as Mm -hmm. my parents have gotten older and we have more responsibilities, things that I maybe would have viewed as, you know, that I I don't even like that word convenience euthanasia, you know, because... (laughs) Because you never know what's it, going on. It automatically, on. yeah, automatically has a negative connotation, which is it not does. maybe the way to, and to view yeah, a situation that exactly, you don't know a lot about. Exactly, because we don't know a lot about. And and I know, um, you know, even something that we might consider a medical issue that could be managed can be overwhelming, you know, I mean, if I had a cat that was peeing all over my house and I had a toddler crawling around and, you know, all of these things, I don't right. know if, you know, we can make that judgment about the situation in such a snap time. And so the short answer to your question is I don't decline euthanasias. Yeah, I understand that. And I think I, same thing. I feel like I've trended that, you know, the more you experience people, the more you experience pets in different scenarios. I do think the more open-minded you get, which is wonderful. Same thing. You know, I think especially my perspective, one of the things I focus on, I know everyone feels differently about this, but to me, euthanasia is by far not the worst thing that could happen to a pet. And I know everyone has different beliefs when it comes to that, but for me, I try to keep that perspective too. You know, there are so many worse scenarios. Do I want this cat locked in a closet because he's peeing everywhere? Mm-hmm. Now, does that not mean you're going to have a nice long conversation with the owner where you try to see eye to eye, try to get them to realize you're on the same team when it comes to say their cat's urinary issues, talk through things? You know, it is tough because it requires such a big time investment that a lot of practitioners don't have. So I think the strain of that right now and discussing these really challenging, a lot of times behavioral disorders or whatever the case might be, can be difficult. But I agree with you. I think I think the term convenience euthanasia is is kind of a sticky one. And I do think that the more you have those open discussions with owners, oftentimes the more you do wind up on the same page with them. Yep, exactly. I think it's important in those situations, especially when we're in the clinic, to just take the time to include the rest of the staff on that too. Because because I don't want that to end up being, because we have that conversation, but maybe the rest of the staff isn't privy to that. And that could potentially be a place where they might acquire some moral distress. Um, I love that and, point. Yeah, so. absolutely. Like, like you said, I think it is, you know, we have so much exposure to veterinary medicine. We have these deep conversations with the owners and so many of the support staff aren't 
you know, don't have those privileges that we do to have insights into the situation. And like you said, I think so many times it weighs so much more heavily on them and they don't feel like they're a part of the decision-making process, which makes them feel even more helpless. So I really like that you brought that up. When it comes to euthanasia for your own pets, Dr. Alyssa, what, what have your experiences been? I know that's a tough topic for all of us. Yeah. So I have always had my animals euthanized by a trusted colleague. So, however, I will tell you, I have not had to euthanize an animal of, you know, a personal pet since I started doing in-home euthanasia. And I might change in the future. I don't know. I still, it's not something that I'm thinking about right now because my girl is happy and healthy. And I I know, shouldn't shouldn't have brought it up, but it is a tough thing to think about. I do think about it periodically though, you know, and so... Given the fact that I have changed so significantly the way that I do this, um, I might consider doing it myself, you know, at home in the future. It will definitely be at home, um, sure. whether or not I have somebody come come to the home and do it or, or I do it myself. I haven't really decided yet, um, but that's a big difference than how, you know, I've always taken my animals in in the past um, sure. and, and had one of my my colleagues do it so that I... I didn't have to be the doctor. I could be the mom and, you know, be there. I like that. Yeah, I've been fortunate that, same thing, my best friend is a veterinarian and so that actually he has not yet gotten to euthanize any of my pets for various reasons. They have either passed on their own or it's been more of an emergent situation. Um, But absolutely, I think that is... I don't think I would be able to, to, to necessarily do it myself unless maybe it was in a setting at home. I think that would be... Something that potentially I could could tackle. One thing I didn't ask yet or we didn't discuss yet is how we feel about owners being away from the pet during euthanasia. And the reason I bring this up is it is a personal thing to me. It was actually my family dog. So by the time we euthanized her, she hadn't been living with me for a while. But I had one of my colleagues euthanize her and I was not there for it. And the reason for that was that she just was an anxious dog. She was old, had elements of dementia, cognitive dysfunction. And me being there, I could tell was a stressor because she wanted to be with me, made her anxious. And I think so, I hear, at least especially from support staff, I hear so much discussion about how could anybody leave their pet for euthanasia? How could they not be there with them? Do you get that a lot? I I do, and, and I've seen... It seems like it goes around Facebook once every couple months. This yes, long yes, thing I, about I, I this is from your that, veterinarian. But... Don't don't leave yes. your pet. They look for you. And I just thought, oh, oh gosh, my gosh, what a, what a sad thing for an owner to read if they had been in that situation oh gosh, where they couldn't be there. And I tell people, it, it is. It's very personal, and you have no idea what what other you know, like I said, what other end of life experiences they've had. Maybe not just with a pet, but maybe with a family member. That's you know, a good point. I mean, as a mom, you know, if you had had a child or sure. or someone close to you pass, you know, maybe just being there is is something that you you can't handle. And and right. I always tell people that's okay. I'll right. be there. I'll hold your pet. Absolutely. I think providing that reassurance Mm -hmm. for them is wonderful. And yeah, my mom, um, when we were, I was probably a teenager and we had one of our pets euthanized. She went 
by herself and had it done. And I don't think it was anything about the process. I think it went smoothly, but she was very traumatized by it. I Mm -hmm. think just, you know, she's not in the medical profession. Right. Doesn't deal with death firsthand like we do. And I think just to see a pet be alive and then not alive was something more than she mentally could could handle. And it just was very upsetting to her for a long time. So I think, yeah, not enough not enough uh, considerations given to that. And I think, yeah, you're you're right. It probably have been triggered before by that Facebook thing that <laughs> decides to go around every <laughs> once in a while. But I do love to provide, you know, we do get a handful of owners opt not to be there. And I do mm-hmm. think, like you said, providing yep. that reassurance that yep. it's not like your pet's going to be alone. It will be very, yep. very loved. Exactly. And, yeah. and, so if uh, they don't, if, if they choose not to be there, I'm okay. What I'll tell you, what does cause me an inordinate amount of stress is like drop-offs where I have not physically spoken to the owner. Mm -hmm. Um, And because I've had that where I've come in for a shift and there is a pet like in a cage that, Mm -hmm. and the, the stress for me comes from just like, you know, I, I would never, ever want a situation where the wrong animal is euthanized. And those things do happen very, very, mm-hmm. very, very rarely. You, I've heard of them and, and that would be crushing. I don't know if I could go on after that. And so right. I have a real um, hard time with that. Um, <laughs> if Yes, absolutely. You do hear those, gosh, so many horror stories. But that one in particular, again, I feel like makes the rounds from time to time you hear of a situation like that. And I do agree. I believe my clinic has a policy where we have to at least speak with the owner in person, which yep. hopefully prevents any mix-ups, worst-case scenario. I think that that is a good, a very good policy to have and one that I strongly recommend. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's take it to a happier note. I know we like to end (laughs) these with wins of the week. Dr. Alyssa, do you have any wins this week? I know you said you've had eight euthanasias. I did did have a win, and it is euthanasia. Like, Okay, that's perfect. That's allowed. I don't know. It's good. (laughs) I mean, that's that's what I do. And so... Um, I had a quality of life consult last week with a very beautiful woman and that situation happened. It was an older dog, but she, she thought the dog had an ACL and it turned out to have osteosarcoma and it was a complete surprise. And her young son, it's spring break here, or it was last week. And so her young son was, um, at his father's out of state. And mm. we wanted to, she, you know, her, her goal was to get the dog, you know, keep the dog comfortable until her son could come home and say goodbye. Sure. Um, and it was going to be several days. And so we did everything. This, this dog had um, metastatic uh, spread. So tumors in the lungs, it had started coughing up a little, a little um, bit of blood. Uh, so we did everything. We did all the mantadine, all the Tylenol. <laughs> we um, uh, started Yunin Biao. She was able to find some, you know, at the Great. local at the local market, and we 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 were able to keep the dog comfortable. Um, I'm I'm confident that the dog was comfortable um, until her son got home to say goodbye, and then we did that earlier this week. So that Aww. was beautiful. Well, that's yes. Quality of life is everything. So I'm sure you 
made that owner feel so much better about the whole situation. Mine is not euthanasia related, which is good because my win is involving my own pet. Um, (laughs) Anybody's heard me talk about Paul. He's my eight-year-old dachshund, love of my life. And he had some health issues this last year where he had some... Um, We think they were PTEs. We don't know why. Can't find any underlying reason. He had two episodes of them. You know, I had already mourned his loss because I thought for sure things weren't going well. He recovered with some anticoagulants that he has been on since then. He did develop pulmonary hypertension. So he has had a cardiologist. And he had an echo this week that showed that his echo was completely normal. So he has now ditched his cardiologist. He is lowering his um, anticoagulants. And then not to share too much of my own personal medical history, but I had some type of virus, some COVID-like virus. I don't think it was COVID that caused me to garner my own cardiologist this year. I developed a fusion, basically, um, pericardial effusion. And Paul and I both this week had our last visit with our cardiologist. We both got cleared. Everything is normal. So we celebrated with some ice cream. And you know, there's nothing better than ditching as many specialists as possible. I am sorry, specialists. (laughs) We love you, but we're happy when we don't have to see you anymore. Exactly. Well, I'm happy that you are okay. And I'm very happy that Paul is okay too. (laughs) Thank you. And yes, thank you so much for this conversation, Alyssa. Like I said, you you became my interim uh, euthanasia expert here just because I know you do do so much of it. So I know this turned into me picking your brain, but we love hearing all of your experiences. And um, it was great to kind of discuss this topic with you. Yeah, it was wonderful to talk to you too. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Veterinary Breakroom. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. You can also listen to podcasts on our website at cliniciansbrief.com slash podcasts, or drop us a line at podcasts at briefmedia.com. Veterinary Breakroom is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ussery with sound by Randall Stupka and co-hosted by Dr. Alyssa Watson and Dr. Beth Mollison.